Uh, glad to, to see you uh, here. A little bit of a snowy uh, morning just since uh, we got started this morning with Sunday school. But uh, before we get started and I do an opening prayer, I do want to just kind of, uh, as a disclaimer, I do kind of want to say that we're talking about Lutz today. Um, and um, we're going to talk about it the way we talk about uh, all other topics, uh, honestly and openly. And um, so real small kids, you might want to consider uh, using kids ministry uh, for, for kids uh, kindergarten to fifth grade. Um, if not, uh, you are responsible for the conversations you have on the way home today. Um, <laughs> not me. So, um, and uh, a couple of people came out of Sunday school, really, uh, it cracked me up. Where a couple of came out and they said, yeah, uh, it, you know, this snow's getting pretty bad. Uh, we're, we're going home and uh, we're, we're just going to drive home after Sunday school. And I said, well, I'm not trying to talk you out of whatever. I said, but we are talking about lust today and it is going to be provocative. So you do what you want to do. So, um, and, uh, um, but uh, we're glad that you're here. And I do, the other kind of housekeeping thing that I want to say is after this passage on lust that Jesus preaches, there is a very short segment of scripture uh, on uh, divorce and remarriage and, and that sort of thing. Um, we're not gonna talk about this in this message, and then it's gonna seem like maybe we skipped over it next Sunday. We're not skipping over it. Um, we're kind of having some conversations right now, some dialogue amongst the staff about the best venue to handle that text in. Uh, we're thinking about maybe doing a special class or, or something like that. Um, I wanted to have um, an opportunity where after hearing that material, people could ask questions. And this venue really is not the best venue to do that in. And so, um, so we're going to kind of work on another venue to talk about divorce, remarriage, and all of that stuff. And if you want to come and be a part of that and hear that material and ask some questions, then we'll have a, uh, we'll have a place where, where that can happen a little bit easier than here. But we're not skipping over it. You'll be hearing more about wh how we're going to do that in the future. So uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll get into this. All right, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, the morning. And uh, for what a beautiful reminder, uh, honestly, that snow is about your grace and um, that you wash us white as snow. And we're grateful for that, um, especially on um, a morning where we're, we're talking about lust and we're talking about our hearts. We want to be uh, reminded about um, your ability to forgive us and your ability to lead us to new life. So we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, several years ago now, uh, Scott uh, Monat, our youth minister, and I were uh, on the same planning team that would uh, plan the Michigan Statewide Teen Convention for uh, between 700 and 900 students or so. And uh, when we were on that team together, there was this kind of uh, story that had gone around. Neither of us were on the team when this happened, but there was this story that went around about this one year that they were planning the convention. Like I said, this was before Scott and I were on there, but they brought in uh, a fairly well-known speaker. I don't know who it was, but I was told that he was pretty well-known. And um, they brought him in to preach at this conference and he did a fabulous job. But when he was done, uh, they received his hotel bill. And uh, on the hotel bill was food and beverage, just like you would uh, expect to see. And then um, the committee was shocked to see that on his hotel bill, there were a couple pornographic movies. And uh, they thought that this surely must be a mistake. And so they called him up and they said, hey, we noticed these films on there and we just kind of wanted to touch base. And um, uh, his response was, you said you would cover my expenses. These are part of my expenses. Um, and uh, just didn't think it was a big deal at all. 
And I will tell you, I think that's becoming a pretty common attitude about the subject of lust. If you have your Bibles, I want to show you here in a few minutes, Matthew chapter 5. But I want you to know the reason why I think this message is so important is that attitude. It's an attitude that says uh, this really isn't um, a very big deal Uh, This isn't really a very big deal at at all. And uh, I think it's important because of the accessibility of this issue. Let me put this in perspective for you. So I last preached on this topic in 2007. Um, I had been here about a year and figured it would be a good idea to preach on lust. Um, And so uh, uh, it was about 11 years ago. And uh, when I went back and looked at that message and just kind of reviewed it, at that time in 2007, At that time, uh, the pornography industry was producing about 20 times as many films as Hollywood was. Uh, The total revenue of the pornographic industry at that time was more than all the major league sports combined, right, in 2007. Since that time, um, uh, since that time, the pornography industry in this country is now more than all the major sports combined, as well as the three major media outlets of our country, right? It, it has absolutely exploded uh, over the last several years. Um, in a recent survey, 70% of all Christians um, admitted to struggling with pornography and lust in their day-to-day life. Uh, 47% of families have said that this is creating a problem in their home. Um, th- uh, the, the sex industry in this country is now um, over $20 billion, and it's just a huge, huge business. It's become uh, just something that's kind of accepted in our country. In a recent survey of, of young people, uh, the survey uh, found that more uh, young people view that um, not recycling, refusing to recycle, is a bigger moral problem than pornography. All right, so that kind of tells you about the acceptance um, of this just in our country about accessibility and, and, accept, and acceptance. And some people would say, and um, I will get the emails this week uh, for people that read it, uh, listen to it online or are here this morning, um, they'll say we shouldn't talk about this at church. And here's what I would like to ask. Where should we talk about it? <laughs> where, where, where should we talk about this issue? Because uh, everybody's talking about it at school, at work, on TV. Lust is everywhere. Our our culture is driven by lust. We are a lust-driven culture. And Jesus talks about it. And so uh, we're going to talk about it openly, honestly. When I make a funny joke, please laugh. It will make me more comfortable. Uh, We're we're not, I'm already uncomfortable as I'm like even, you know, looking at you. So, all right, so um, uh, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. All right, here's what Jesus said. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, all right, good command, all right, uh, biblical command. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And I want to start out with an understanding of how, how Jesus is defining lust here, because I think it's, that's important, is that lust is not noticing someone's attractiveness. That, that's not what lust is. Lust is not identifying that that person is good looking. The Greek word here, lust, um, it's not actually always translated lust in your New Testament. This word is actually often translated as desire. 
And so on one occasion, uh, this actually describes Jesus is going to sit down for a meal with his disciples. And in Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, this word is used. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover feast with you before I suffer. That, that is the Greek word for lust. It is eagerly desiring that, that Jesus had this desire to eat the Passover meal. So it carries with it the idea, it's not necessarily a sexual term. And so if you really, really want some pizza or uh, a Wendy's hamburger or cheesecake or something like that, you could say and be totally accurate, um, I'm lusting after that. I really lust after pizza. Don't do it because it's super creepy. But you could, all right? You could do that, all right? It's the same, it's the same Greek word. And so Jesus is going to bring it over into the sexuality realm, but all lust means is desire. And when you put it, bring, move it over to the sexuality realm, here's a good definition, I think, of lust. I'll put it on the screen for you. It is a sexual desire, all right? It's desiring. A sexual desire towards someone that is not your spouse. So it's not simply they're cute or they're handsome or they're attractive. It turns to desire. I that desire that person sexually, and I'm not married to them. And Jesus starts out with this scripture saying, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we want to start out with this truth on the screen for you. Listen, you are saved by grace. And that includes this issue. We're going to talk about this later, but there's a lot of guilt surrounding this issue. There's a little bit of shame surrounding this issue. You are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But God cares about your heart. He does. God cares about your heart. And because God cares about your heart, he cares about your anger that we talked about last week. He cares about lust. He cares about these issues. Now, now to understand why this is so offensive to God and, and why he addresses it here, we have to go back to the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean the beginning of the world. That God created uh, the first man, and uh, God very quickly realized. He took one look at the man, and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. <laughs> right? Amen, right? It is just not good, right? And so a, a search went on uh, with God with a suitable helper. Uh, none was found. And so God realizes that he's going to have to create a partner for the man. Puts the man to sleep, pulls the rib, creates the woman. And when the man first wakes up from his sleep and he sees the woman standing there, he feels the need to write a song, right? Which is one of the most romantic things you can do. Valentine's Day's this week, you know, go for it. I'm not going to, but you go for it, all right? I am not a songwriter, right? That's not my thing. But, and the song goes like this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. And the text goes on to say, for this reason... A man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And this word united in the Hebrew, it is a word that literally means to stick together. So he says, I created this man, and I created this woman, and my intention is that they would stick together, that they would stick so close together that they would become one Flesh, And he's talking relationally, certainly, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And I, I have always taught, and I had always believed, 
uh, that this kind of uh, sexual side of this one flesh idea, the idea of sticking together, the sexual intimacy side of that was an illustration for the relational, spiritual, and emotional intimacy that we're to have as husband and wife. And and all of that is hugely important. It really is, that uh, relational, spiritual, and emotional intimacy. But I believe that the, the, the physical, sexual component that this text is describing is not an illustration of those other bonds. I believe it's a deep part of the bond itself. In other words, let me say it to you this way. Something happens when two people come together physically and sexually. Um, something happens that bonds them together. They become one flesh. And this is why, all right, just as a side note, this is why uh, sex outside of the marriage covenant is such a dangerous thing. Um, is that there, uh, sex creates a bonding together, a one flesh issue. And so what I've seen happen sometimes is that a couple starts dating uh, and the emotional and relational intimacy is not there. And they introduce uh, sex to the relationship way too early. They introduce sex to it and they feel bonded together. And so what happens is they look past that relational intim- the, the relational issues that are there. They look past the emotional issues that are there. The, the sexual intimacy makes them feel more bonded than maybe they should feel at that point in the relationship. And so a lot of times it moves on to marriage. They get married and all of a sudden, a couple months into the marriage, all this stuff starts coming to the surface, Right? Like, man, we've got relational issues. Um, We've got emotional issues. We've got spiritual issues. And all that trouble kind of comes to the surface. And a lot of it is because sexual intimacy masked the other issues. Uh, This bonding is why uh, adultery is so painful. Um, One of the things that absolutely has driven me nuts in this country since the 1990s has been this phrase, it's just sex right? It drives me absolutely insane. If it's just a physical act, if it's just sex, why does adultery hurt so bad, right? If it were just a a physical act, it could be easily forgiven and we'd move on. But we all know that's not true, that when someone has an affair, it causes a ton of hurt and pain in the relationship. Why? Because you were supposed to stick together, And one person in the relationship kind of tore apart from that and it created pain, right? It created pain, And so Jesus says something very provocative in this text, all right, with all that kind of sticking together kind of idea uh, in place, Jesus says that, uh, and this is where I'm going to lose some of you, and that's uh, okay, come on back to me in a minute. But Jesus says, when you lust after someone, when you desire after someone who's not your, 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 someone you're not married to, even though no contact has happened, you've committed adultery in your heart. That in your heart, you're breaking that bond. In your heart, you're not sticking together. In your heart, uh, you're committing adultery. And some people would say, well, I've never had an affair. And that is a good thing. Don't leave here saying that's not a good thing. Right? Having a physical, not having a physical affair is a good thing. That is very hard for a relationship to recover from. Jesus' point is, you don't have to have committed the physical act for something to be incredibly dangerous. That lust on its own, adultery of the heart, Adultery of the heart is incredibly dangerous to a relationship, both to marrieds and to singles. Um, To marrieds, man, um, if you're married and and you find yourself in an active, lustful situation, uh, Jesus would say, here is the danger for you. It is the danger of misplaced desire. That if you have an active lust, lust life and you're desiring after someone who's not your spouse, the logical conclusion of this is that you're not desiring your husband or your wife the way that you should. 
You're not bonding. You're not sticking with them the way that you should. And there is a popular, popular cultural mindset. Cheryl and I were talking about this the other day. A popular cultural mindset that says an active lust life will enhance your marriage. And you need to know 100% that is a lie. It is. An active lust life will not enhance your marriage. And and Cheryl and I were talking about, we've both heard people say this before, and it is 100% a lie. Overwhelmingly, couples that have an active lust life component, an active pornographic component to their marriage, overwhelmingly the divorce rate is higher. Overwhelmingly. And if you survey those couples, most of the time they will talk about uh, one one or other of the people in the relationship will uh, describe feeling debased, or unattractive, or unwanted, or, or undesired. And introducing that into the marriage relationship uh, brings about a lot of marital issues. And so that, that's why what Jesus is teaching is so important. He's like, man, get your heart in check. Make sure the object of your desire, the, the object of your want, is the person that you're married to. So this creates problems for marrieds. It creates problems for singles, too. That if you're single, uh, and you have an active lust life, um, what you may be tempted to think is, well, I'm not, I haven't chosen to stick together with anyone yet. Right? I'm not married to anyone, so what's the big deal? Um, there's no one uh, to really hurt. And I think Jesus would say, uh, based on my understanding of this text, that you want to think about the future a little bit, and you want to think about that day that's coming when you are going to say, man, I wanna, that's the person I want to stick with. That's the person I want to be with. That's the person I want to be in, in a relationship with. Because here's what's happening with an active lust life, is that it is shaping your expectations for the future. Um, it is shaping your expectations for the future, and it is causing uh, misplaced expectations and desires toward your future spouse. And so it's what, what an active lust life does is it shapes your expectations of what a relationship is going to be like in, in the future with the person that you're eventually going to marry. And so what we've seen happen, the science has kind of followed this uh, the last several years, is that for some people it leads to a disappointment in married sex life, Right? Uh, that, that your spouse is not living up to expectations that you've uh, created in the fantasy world. Um, uh, some end up placing expectations on their married partner uh, that debases them or uses them for their own enjoyment and it ends up devalu- devaluing them. Uh, some, they simply return to pornography or they return to lust after they get married um, and it has an effect, impact on their marriage. Um, Uh, Science is just catching up with this now, that we know, uh, we, I'm not a scientist, I just read the study, but um, we know that amongst very young men, um, we know that, I was joking this morning, now I don't even want to do it, I've never used this word in a sermon before, but we know that reports of erectile dysfunction amongst very young men is skyrocketing, right? And one of the reasons that they believe that's happening, there's a lot of reasons they believe that it's happening, but one is uh, pornography. That um, as uh, men that were raised on pornography, as they're getting older, it's becoming difficult to engage outside of fantasy. And so very, very, so we, we see what our, how our cultures lied to us about this, right? And, and how what Jesus says is true. And so one of the things that God did that I think was absolutely brilliant is when it comes to sexual intimacy, is that he created in us 
uh, hormones and pheromones and, and that sort of thing uh, that bring about pleasure. So the purpose of sex is not just procreation, it's also that, but it's also the same chemicals that are released in addictive behaviors. Right? And so what, the reason I say this is kind of brilliant is that God's plan for my marriage is that I would become increasingly addicted to Cheryl and she would become increasingly addicted to me that there would be that element in the relationship uh, that, that, would be, that would be a net positive. Um, unfortunately, what it also means is, is that at times, lust can become addictive. Um, that it, it was meant to be a positive thing, and it is a positive thing, but lust is a cheap substitute for that. And the same hormones and the same chemicals are released, which means you can become addicted to this. And so some single people say, oh, well, I'll just stop when I get married. And that's not always as easy as it sounds. Um, and a lot of people find themselves kind of coming back to that. So we are in a, all that to say, uh, we are in a lust-driven culture. Um, and uh, like I said, there's a lot of shame around this. Uh, there's a lot of embarrassment around this. Um, and I, I always say there's a reason lust happens in private. Um, because there's a part of us that wants to keep this hidden so that nobody knows and nobody sees. sees. And what I want to remind you of is the gospel for a minute, that Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross for your sins. And he gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can live a different life. And that means two things for us today. It means that God absolutely can forgive your sin and promises to so if you're, you're here today, and this is just one of those, you know, a bunch of people here last week struggled with anger. That was kind of their thing. And if you're here today and you kind of struggle with lust, and, and, and lust is your thing, you need to know God absolutely can forgive your sin, and will, and promises to. But there's a second component that I want you to know, is that God absolutely can heal your mind. Right? And science is actually just catching up to this as well. They're like, wow, um, uh, I just read this this morning, actually. But some of you may have heard uh, uh, about uh, Justin Bieber, also the first time I've ever mentioned him in a sermon. But anyway, um, uh, Justin Bieber um, was talking about how uh, he had fallen into some sexual sin. And it had really grabbed a hold of him. And uh, he said that he went on to fast from sexual activity, um, sexual activity for a full year. And uh, he, he did this interview and was talking about how much healing that brought to his mind. And so I want you to know Jesus has this amazing power to forgive you, but also to heal you. And so I made this reference last week to Jesus uh, going, there was this pool where everyone believed that you could get healed in this pool. And Jesus went by there and it was the first one in the pool uh, to get in the pool at the time that the water stirred would get healed. And Jesus was there and there was a guy that was paralyzed and he could never get to the pool fast enough. And Jesus just asked, I think, a very provocative question. And he says to the guy, do you want to be healed? And I think it's an important question when we're talking about matters of the heart, whether it's anger or lust or uh, divorce that Jesus goes on later, or personal character, uh, generosity, wh whatever. And it's like, man, this is an issue for me. Do I really want to be healed? And um, uh, because not everyone does. This is a, I think this is a, a battle that our culture is fighting. And I regret that it's been 10 years since I've preached on it, to be totally honest with you. It, it is something I regret uh, uh, to my shame that our culture has just taken a hold of this issue of lust and they have made what is wrong right. And the church has stood idly by and just allowed it to happen, honestly. 
and we should, the church in mass should have been preaching on this and teaching on this and um, moving people in another direction. And so um, Jesus uh, says, man, if you wanna be healed, there are some things you can do. So let me, let me put this on the screen for you. And you have to understand, Jesus, this is a little tongue in cheek with Jesus. We'll talk about what he means by it in a minute. But he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. There's your advice, right? And, um, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body uh, than for your whole body to go into hell. And Jesus is not promoting masochistic practices here or self-mutilation. Uh, what he's saying tongue-in-cheek is he's saying you do what you can do on this issue. Right? You control your environment. You take steps that, that you can take. And just as a side note, um, Scott and I were, were talking about this earlier this week, about this whole Me, me Too movement thing um, that, that has happened in our culture. My, my goodness, if people would follow the teaching of Jesus, there would, we wouldn't need to have a Me Too movement, right? That Jesus knew what he was talking about. Right? It sounds silly even having to say this, but um, I don't get some of the kind of hostility towards Christianity, Right, and that, that we're prudes, and we don't know what we're talking about. It's like, man, if you'd follow Matthew 5, we wouldn't have this cultural mess that we're in. We wouldn't have Me Too. We wouldn't have sexual sin that, that violates the, the rights and violates the treatment of others. So Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about, and here's what he says. Control what you can control. Control your environment. Here's what he means by that. Lust is very predictable, right? We tend to be tempted by lust. We tend to be tempted in the same places, in the same ways, at the same time, right? So let me encourage you with this. When it comes to lust, you don't have to probably fight lust every minute of the day. You're not lusting right now, right? <laughs> Correct? Right, okay, all right, <laughs> right. You're not, you're, not, you're not lusting right now, and I don't blame you a bit, all right? So, um, so you're, you're not lusting right now, so this is not a battle that has to be fought every minute of the day, that their lust is extremely predictable. It tends to happen for, for wherever, however you struggle, it probably tends to happen in the same place around the same time, and the same thing tends to trigger it again and again. One of the Old Testament examples of this was uh, in the Old Testament, um, you would uh, uh, have your kind of bath up on top of the roof. And what you would do is you'd put the water in it in the morning, all day long in the Middle East, you know, it would uh, heat the water. And then at night you would go up and you would do your bath. So there's a story in the Old Testament where King David, he's hanging out up on the roof one night. He's not taking a bath, he's just hanging out up there. Why? It's the time when people are bathing. He's being a peeping David, Right? And he sees a woman, uh, I love that nervous laughter. It makes me laugh every time. <laughs> I was like, no, it's really okay. All right, so uh, he sees this woman bathing. It leads him to adultery and eventually murder. He kills her husband. And so here's what I think Jesus is saying tongue in cheek about gouging out the eye and cutting off the hand, all that stuff. You know, obviously he's not advocating that for real. What he's advocating is this. We strive after righteousness. If the roof is a problem, don't go up to the roof. If the roof is a problem, don't go up to the roof, right? So we strive after righteousness. We understand we're not saved by our own righteousness. We're saved by the righteousness of Christ. 
But that grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, should cause us to strive for righteousness. So never give up on this, never give in. Lust is like anger and and any kind of heart issue, is that there are victories that we're gonna have and there are defeats that we're gonna have, but here's the thing that we never, ever, ever do, we never give up. We never give in, we never just accept that this is how I am, this is how I struggle, I can never overcome this. We never, ever, ever give up. So if you have a tendency to see people at the gym, and at the gym it causes you to lust, change your gym membership. Control what you can control. If for you it's the internet and at home and you can't control yourself, do something about that. Put some accountability software, or uh, I knew one guy that one time canceled his internet. He took aggressive measures. If it's cable and movies that really bother you, just move away from those things. Control the environment the best way that you can control it. Um, my, I, I think sometimes that parents can stand in the gap for their kids a little bit. Uh, I grew up, uh, Cheryl will tell you, that I grew up in a very restrictive environment, all right? So uh, that my, my parents were very, very strict. The first time uh, that I ever had the internet, um, the first time that I ever had internet uh, was when I was married to Cheryl. I had never had the internet in my home until I was in my late 20s, all right? And uh, we just, we didn't have it growing, I mean, it was the beginning of the internet when I was growing up, first of all. I think that's when Al Gore invented it, but... Um, <laughs> So it, it, was the, it was the beginning of that. And so we didn't have in our home, I went to college, we didn't have the capability of having in our dorm room. Uh, I got out in my young adult life and I just, I just didn't have it. Um, and then when Cheryl and I got married, um, uh, we, we ended up uh, getting the internet in our home by then. But at that point I was 28. And the decision-making part of my brain, you know the decision-making part of your kid's brain is the last part of the brain to form? right? So if you ever are like super, super frustrated with your kids, right? Just understand that part of the brain is still forming, right? They're they're not making the best decisions. And so parents need to kind of stand in the gap with that with their kids. And I remember growing up, you know, kind of kicking stones or whatever, because that's all we could do because I didn't have the internet. So we'd kick (laughs) stones, right? I'd be out kicking stones or whatever. Oh man, my... That was good. Yeah, so I um, said, man, my parents are so strict. My parents are so strict. My parents are so strict. And then when I got to be about 27 and 28, I was like, I am so grateful my parents were so strict. Um, and, I, and I can tell you to this day um, that I feel like my parents saved me from a lot of hassle, to be totally honest with you, by being um, a, little more, a, a little more strict. So I think parents can stand uh, in the gap and... Um, uh, you know, one of uh, the kind of brilliant books that I read over uh, the last couple years was uh, a thing about the power of habit and about how we all want to live more disciplined lives. We want to, as Christians, I think we all want to stay away from this stuff. And what the book proposes is that you don't have to develop every new habit that you want to develop. Uh, you have to, you, you develop one habit, just develop one habit. And um, that habit will begin to knock down the other dominoes and they'll all begin to fall. And uh, at first I thought, that is a really silly thing. That you only have to develop one habit and the others will fall. And I started to think about my life and you know what, it's true. You know what the habit is for me? That I can tell when I'm doing that, it starts to knock down the other dominoes and I just become a more disciplined person. It's gonna sound really stupid, but it's real. It's flossing, seriously. 
For me, it's flossing. That when I get the discipline of at night, I go up to bed and I, I floss my teeth. When I find that I develop that one discipline, it begins to knock down a whole other group of disciplines that I didn't even see coming because I developed one. And so you don't have to climb every mountain and defeat every dragon, right? Just begin to develop these disciplines of maybe when you would normally play on the internet, this is a real preacher thing to say, but when you would normally you play on the internet, you're reading your Bible instead, or you're praying, or you're spending time with your family, or whatever the case may be, that you're developing a couple disciplines, and I promise you that will empower you and help you along the way. So Jesus talks in this passage about the danger of, of hell, and I talked about this last week a little bit, but remember, um, there was a physical concern. When Jesus talks this way, there's first of all physical concern that Gehenna was literally a trash dump outside of Jerusalem, where they burned bodies and they burned trash and, uh, and all of that. So, so the first kind of lesson here is a physical lesson that Jesus wants more for your life. He wants more for your marriage, that he is concerned about how lust is going to impact your life. He's concerned about that. And so he says, man, I don't want you living in the trash dump when the Marriott is available. And, and so the first thing is a physical thing. And Jesus is just like, man, I want more for your life. But then um, the second concern is a more spiritual concern. He says, man, lust makes a terrible God. It, it does. It makes a terrible God. And it will lead you to dark places to do dark things. So Jesus says, man, I don't want this thing leading you away from me. Um, I don't want you, this leading you to Gehenna. So he wants us to renew our faith in him. And it starts with, man, you, you are not in this thing alone. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have hopefully friends and family that you can confess to that can help you but it starts with controlling what you can control, right? You can't control your past, it's done. But by controlling your present, you can change your future. He forgives your sin, and I believe he heals your mind. I really do. I've seen this happen again and again where a person engages in new disciplines, they begin to lay some things down, and all of a sudden their mind begins to be healed of some of the things they've seen and some of the things they've done. It's an amazing grace. It is a grace, but having your mind healed is an amazing, amazing grace. But Jesus says, it starts out, man, if your right eye causes you to sin, don't just allow that. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, do something. Change a habit, develop a new habit, change the way that things are operating, get aggressive, and begin to take this thing down one step at a time. So I talked to you a little bit about King David was the guy on the roof, the peeping David, right? And uh, he ended up falling into this kind of deep, dark sin, and years later, he would write, um, uh, well, not years later, a short time later, actually, he would write Psalm 51. And I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. I love this text. And I wanna share it with you because I want, I want you to know that with any sin, whether it's anger or sexual sin or an attitude problem or whatever it happens to be, our God is so gracious and kind. And that's the past. There is always a path forward with God. Always a path forward with God. And, and David learned that. Here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you believe Jesus does that? I do. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I know what I've done. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight and that you proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
Surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Right? That's an amazing thing that God does is he starts to whisper into our ear, I want better for you. I want more for you. He begins to whisper that in our ear. So he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Amen? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I love that line. Grant me, God, I, I want to overcome this. Would you, God, would you give me a willing spirit to do what it takes to over, be an overcomer? Grant me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite spirit. O God, you will not despise. So it's like, what is God looking for? He's looking for us to have that spirit that says, I'm done with this. I'm ready to move forward. This is, this is a sin that's affecting me. I see how it's affecting me, and I'm ready to move on from it. That's a broken and contrite spirit. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, and then bulls will be offered in your altar. Never give up. Ever. Never give up. In our culture, it is a significant battle. <laughs> lust is everywhere. The, the, the availability of lust is everywhere. It's everywhere. Right? We think of our phones as a blessing. I'm not so sure. Right? Of, of devices. Of, it is everywhere. But as Jesus followers, we never give up. We never give up. We hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Not so we'll be saved, but because we are. And we believe he's leading us to life. And we believe that he can forgive our sin and he can heal our minds, right? So this does not mean, as you know, uh, with anything that we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, any heart issue we're talking about, it's not like you're leaving here probably and just like, boom, healed, over, done. It means that now we leave here invigorated for the struggle again. Maybe we've just given in on some things. Like, oh, this is who I am. This is how I do it. This is what I struggle with. This is who I am. And maybe today you can be rejuvenated and renewed and say, no, I'm going to put on my sword and I'm going to get my, uh, get my armor on and I'm going to go back into battle. I am not giving up on this. I'm not giving in. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to tackle this thing again. Um, and God has life for you and God has promises for you. He desires to forgive you. He desires to heal you. And there is no greater story about this, I think, than what we're about to celebrate, communion. It's an opportunity to remember, man, we are forgiven and he gives us his spirit. We are forgiven and he gives us his spirit. And so today as we receive communion, we just want to remember those two truths. I am forgiven and I have received his Holy Spirit. I am forgiven. I have received his, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you, right? Not a similar 
spirit, right? Kind of, you know, close. The same. The same spirit that rose from the dead. And you're just going to tell me, though, this is how I am, right? I, I give up. No, I'm not giving up. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is at work in you. And so you can be resurrected from this. You can achieve victory in this. You can walk forward in this. And that, my friends, is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your grace. And uh, Lord, we just want to receive a communion here. And we want to be reminded of your grace, that we are forgiven. And we want to be reminded of your power at work in us. That uh, for some people in this room, lust might not be a huge struggle for them. But maybe their anger, unforgiveness, whatever it happens to be, all of us have a heart thing that we're struggling with. And you empower us and you help us. And we're grateful. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together. Two cups stacked on top of each other. One has the bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. This is an opportunity for us to receive it. I'll come back up. We'll receive it together and be reminded of his grace and his power made sufficient in our weakness.